Welcome to Science for the Real World, Conversations with Canadian Clinicians. This episode, part of Canadian Allergy and Immunology Today, is about the treatment and management of hereditary angioedema and is sponsored by Biochrist. Our moderator, Dr. Susan Wasserman, is joined by Dr. Don Goodyear and Dr. Adil Adatia. Hi everyone, my name is Susan Wasserman. I'm an allergist immunologist at McMaster University, and I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, Dr. Don Goodyear, a hematologist from Foothills Hospital in the University of Calgary, and Dr. Adil Adatya, an allergist immunologist from the University of Alberta. And tonight we're gonna to talk about the treatment and management of hereditary angioedema. So let's start with you, Don, if that's okay. Orient us to hereditary angioedema. How are patients generally presenting to you and what are the symptoms that you typically see? Thank you, Susan. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, hereditary angioedema is a, a fascinating, uh, rare inherited condition that is associated with recurrent episodes of angioedema or swelling, which we typically refer to as, as HAE attacks. Um, it has a number of interesting, uh, unique characteristics uh, that lead to challenges for both treaters as well as patients and caregivers. Um, the symptoms of HAE are primarily uh, due to temporary leakage of plasma from blood vessels into surrounding tissues, and that's what leads to the clinical manifestations. HAE is characterized by unpredictable, painful swelling that can affect any location, but common sites include the extremities, abdomen, genitals, and face. Um, and one of the difficulties is that the severity of symptoms can vary from very mild to debilitating or even disfiguring. And patients often find and report that the symptoms can even vary between attacks. Um, the age at onset of symptoms can vary, although it typically occurs around the time of puberty. Um, but the, there is often a delay in recognition of the diagnosis. Uh, in the literature, it indicates anywhere from 8 to 12 years. So during that time, patients may be exposed to ineffective treatments. They may undergo unnecessary procedures and have negative experiences with, with the healthcare system. Um, but certainly the most feared complication of HAE is angioedema involving the throat or oropharynx, uh, which can result in airway obstruction. Thank you for that excellent overview of a real myriad of symptoms that you're seeing. And I was just going to ask you in addition, do you think that you're seeing these people at earlier stages in their symptoms as opposed to the many years before accurate diagnosis? Um, you know, I, I think uh, we've tried to provide education um, to our, our local uh, healthcare providers. And so I think as a result of that, we are seeing patients earlier. Um, and we're also being referred uh, family members of individuals where there's a question of a diagnosis of HAE. Um, so with educational efforts, we are hoping to, to try to see these patients earlier. Adil, would that be your experience as well, that you're receiving referrals from a multitude of different physicians who are seeing patients with these symptoms? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we get uh, referrals from um, family doctors, emergency department physicians, uh, and also other specialists. And um, I would agree that we're seeing patients at an earlier age. Uh, there is, I think, an increasing recognition that uh, children can also be affected. And so a number of our new referrals are actually in uh, children uh, who are having uh, their first few attacks. Things have certainly developed quite significantly in hereditary angioedema. We now have a variety of different therapies. The landscape is very different than what it used to be. 
So Adele, how do you decide in your treatment of these patients when to put them on long-term prophylaxis, which has certainly become the standard of care for many of our patients with HAE? What are your considerations? Yeah, so uh, long-term prophylaxis or regular treatment to prevent these um, painful swelling episodes is now a cornerstone of treatment. And I really like how in the present guidelines it highlights that our goal is to normalize the lives of these patients. And that's really the goal that I have when uh, approaching that decision. So I offer the possibility of long-term prophylaxis to any patient. And I particularly encourage patients who clearly have changes in their uh, lifestyle, restrictions in their activities, for example, and overall decreased quality of life um, because of actual attacks or even uh, fear of, of having attacks. So Adil, what's currently available in the treatment landscape that's going to help you meet these goals? And how do you present it to your patient, the different choices? So there are three options right now that are recommended and are considered a modern, highly effective long-term prophylaxis options. So there is a C1 uh, inhibitor, uh, which primarily these days is given uh, subcutaneously, but can also be given intravenously. There is um, lanadelumab, a biologic targeting plasma calocrine. And then there is an oral plasma calocrine inhibitor that was uh, the most recent addition uh, called Baratrolstat. When I'm offering a patient long-term prophylaxis, I'll go through all three options with them uh, and discuss the advantages and disadvantages of each. And then I let them decide what they think will you know, most fit in their concept of living a close to normal life. And Adil, any barriers would you say in getting them to accept this notion of long-term prophylaxis? Do any of them give you an argument saying, oh, doctor, this makes me think that my disease is more severe, I'm not yet ready, or do they embrace it pretty readily? I find that it can be quite variable. Uh, certainly the patients that are having frequent uh, severe attacks are, are very much interested in um, using treatment to prevent them. But the patients that are having less frequent attacks but still have significant impairment in their quality of life, they can be quite resistant uh, to considering long-term prophylaxis. And often they they do say that if I'm just treating when I need to, I feel like I'm not as ill or I don't have a disease. Whereas if I have to take something regularly, then I feel like uh, I have a chronic disease. Uh, so that I think is a uh, an ongoing issue and um, something that we have to consider when we're counseling our patients. No, for sure. And it's interesting how the majority of our Canadian patients are on long-term prophylaxis. So clearly this has been a benefit for the majority. Don, what do you think? How do you present the case for long-term prophylaxis to your patients? I mean, it's interesting because the other thing that I often see in patients is that by the time uh, they receive their diagnosis, in some circumstances, they've almost normalized the unpredictability of living with HAE. And sometimes it requires multiple discussions to actually convince them that they can derive benefit from long-term prophylaxis. Um, but once we actually have that conversation and, and they start, most of them don't want to stop because all of a sudden they see how uh, a normal life can be and uh, they're no longer uh, burdened by the unpredictability of the attacks. 
Do you meet resistance from any patients when you try and explain the concept of long-term prophylaxis? Patients are are open to the idea of long-term prophylaxis. Um, we often will explore, you know, their disease experience, what their um, what their goal is in starting treatment, what they would like to see their future look like, and then we try to actually match their treatment goals with what we have available to them. Patients are always given an opportunity to reevaluate and and ensure that they're satisfied with that that option. If not, then we can always uh, reconsider something else. Yes, I uh, I completely agree. And one thing I always mention to patients is that the best treatment option for you right now may not be the best treatment option for you down the road. And um, we should continue open discussions at each appointment and um, switching from one therapy to another should be encouraged if we feel like uh, you're going to benefit more from something else. No, I agree with both of you totally. This is something that should come up for discussion at every visit people's needs change, their lifestyle change, their expectation of what they're hoping to achieve changes. So certainly nice to have choice and to be aware of all these quality of life issues. Clearly, we do have good effective therapies at the present time, but what do you still think are the unmet needs in hereditary angioedema? What are the gaps? What do your patients speak to you about, uh, about living with the disease? Though clearly it's better than it's ever been. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that um, there's still a, a huge gap around diagnosis, as we've talked about before. Um, you know, HAE is often mistaken for other types of swelling like allergies and anaphylaxis. And so that results in delayed recognition and, and um, inadequate treatment. Um, but there, we're also lacking the ability to do genetic testing, uh, which is which is limiting our ability to um, improve diagnostic certainty and even uh, identify other potentially affected family members. But I think that the other uh, big unmet need from my perspective is just the high burden of illness and how it impacts their psychosocial well-being. You know, we know that patients and caregivers lose a lot of time from work and school. Uh, it can have an impact on their education and their career aspirations. And I think that a lot of us don't have the resources or the services to appropriately address the psychosocial burden of illness. I think we do a, a much better job of managing the clinical symptoms and controlling the swelling. But I think we also need to focus on sort of a more holistic approach and looking at the other aspects of living with HAE. I think that those are excellent points and especially, uh, you know, the issue of passing on this disease to children since it is autosomal dominant in most cases is something that patients speak about very frequently. Adil, would you agree with those unmet needs and the burden of illness? Is this what you're seeing in your patients as well? Absolutely. Yes, I completely agree. I think it's easy for us to think of the disease entirely as the episodes of swelling that patients experience, but uh, the condition affects patients in ways that are far beyond that. Uh, and understanding that from a holistic perspective, I think is very important to uh, establish rapport with patients and then also to make treatment decisions. I would agree completely. And what would it take, in your opinion, to address some of these issues better uh, as clinicians? Is it the use of tools to assess quality of life? Is it just a conversation? Is it soliciting mental health support for these patients? Is it all of the above? Don, do you want to tackle that? 
Yeah, I think it's all of the above. I I mean, I I think that we need to uh, get a perspective from the patient's viewpoint as to how it's actually impacting their day-to-day life and see whether there are resources available that we can access that can help them work through that using specific quality of life tools as a more validated assessment of uh, the impact that HAE is having. Are you using those regularly in your clinic? we are using quality of life assessments. Uh, We're fortunate to also have the support of a psychologist. And so uh, we do rely on on her expertise to to help us navigate that landscape with patients. Yeah, I think that's great. You're ahead of the game of of some centers for sure. What about you, Adil? What do you think your needs are in order to address some of these issues? What do you have and what is the ideal? I think the ideal is to have strongly integrated uh, mental health care, a lot like what uh, Don described. Uh, in our clinic, we have access to a social worker who has some training in providing counseling. And uh, we also have found it helpful to use the uh, standardized patient reported outcomes uh, to assess quality of life. But in general, the utility of those, I find, is really to open up the conversation with patients rather than in the number, uh, in the score that they might get. So for instance, in the angioedema control questionnaire, one of the questions is about fear of having attacks. And in someone who has not had attack for years, sometimes we still see that they are quite afraid of that. And that gives us an opportunity to explore that further. We've certainly had some excellent developments in treatment over the years, but give us an overview of what's coming. What are the emerging therapies that uh, are going to come to Canadians living with this diagnosis? So most likely the next treatment that will um, receive Health Canada approval will be Gerdasimab. The phase three study Vanguard reported results uh, earlier this year, which were strongly positive. This is an interesting drug in that it's a biologic uh, or monoclonal antibody that's given subcutaneously once per month, um, which is uh, potentially an improvement if patients find frequent injections bothersome. And its mechanism of action is different. So this uh, inhibits factor 12A rather than plasma calocrine. The results of the phase three study were quite encouraging and so I expect it will be a welcome addition to our um, armamentarium. Excellent. And anything beyond that that you think the future holds in terms of upcoming therapies? Will we have a gene therapy or something emerging? The uh, the next treatment uh, that is in the pipeline, whose uh, phase three study is just about completed, is for a, an antisense oligonucleotide technology. The uh, investigational product is called Donadlorsin, and this blocks plasma calocrine at the messenger RNA level. Uh, so that is also a, a new treatment with a different uh, mechanism of action that it could potentially be quite valuable. We'll have to see what the uh, results of the phase three study show. And then, uh, as you mentioned, we do indeed have a number of gene therapy technologies that are in the pipeline. And uh, the goal for those treatments is to potentially offer a cure where patients might get a single treatment and then no longer be at risk for hereditary angioedema attacks. There's still a long way to go for some of those uh, products. They're currently in early phases, like phase two, but um, 
I think it definitely gives our patients a lot of hope. Don, how do you see this affecting how you practice? I mean, clearly we're going to have access to a month, once monthly monoclonal daridisumab. Uh, is it just going to be part of the armamentarium? Will that help address some of the gaps of treatment burden that you spoke about earlier? Yeah, I think it's it's an exciting time to be involved in uh, HAE care. I think that the future is bright with some of these new options, but I think it also puts emphasis on the fact that our clinical encounters with patients really need to focus on tailored therapies and shared decision-making. In our clinic, we try to, to focus our discussions at each clinic appointment on patient satisfaction. We review the different options for long-term prophylaxis and on-demand therapy. And we do find that sometimes patients will come with um, a specific therapy that they want to discuss, particularly if they're well-engaged in the uh, patient advocacy groups um, or if they have peers who've been on certain treatments that may uh, spark their interest to consider other options. But I think you know a, a good example of the importance of choice is what we've seen with uh, some patients who've been reluctant to long-term prophylaxis because up to recently, it's primarily been uh, injectables. They're plasma products that we discuss. And so the availability of an oral plasma calocrine inhibitor for long-term prophylaxis has been very attractive for some patients. And for some of those that have been resistant to initiating long-term prophylaxis, we've actually found that they've become more engaged and, and they've actually taken up that therapy um, to, to help to control their symptoms better. My experience has been uh, very similar, that a number of patients that felt long-term prophylaxis was too burdensome uh, definitely found that uh, an oral treatment option that was effective was um, very attractive. Many people take at least one pill a day, and it's very much normalized within society. Uh, and so I feel like they don't see themselves as being, you know, having a severe chronic disease if that's what tra- a treatment looks like. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Any parting words from both of you? I think that the landscape for for HAE management is is quite exciting, and it's great to be able to offer patient choice and to focus not only on addressing the burden of illness, but also to to focus on the burden of treatment and make sure that patients are able to live their best lives and aren't limited by having a diagnosis like HAE. And Adil, last word to you. I think that patients uh, have uh, a lot to be encouraged by with these uh, existing treatment options and new treatment options to come. Uh, Hopefully, in another uh, five years or 10 years, we'll be talking predominantly about cures. Excellent. A very interesting and informative discussion. I think that this prospect of even talking about cures is extremely exciting. I want to thank both of our speakers for sharing their expertise with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Science for the Real World, sponsored by BioChrist and produced by Catalytic Health.